Good afternoon, this is Dr. Dan Guerra of this Authentic Biochemistry Podcast, and today is still the 24th of May, 2023. I'm trying to do a double header here because uh, I want to get a lot of material done because I'm going to be on the road for several days. <clears throat> Let's go back and talk about the GI tract. The GI tract is basically a conduit that allows for an anatomical positioning to prevent nutrient excess via what's known as a negative feedback mechanism. <clears throat> now, we talked about it before. We talked about stomach emptying. Now, that occurs through a nutrient-induced secretion of GI hormones. So in the stomach, ghrelin is the orexigenic peptide that's synthesized. It's actually an octanil, uh, octanilated protein. That means it has a eight-carbon saturated fatty acid esterified to the protein. So that particular uh, orexigenic peptide increases associated with the timing of a meal and the intake of specific nutrients, particularly carbohydrate, lipid, and protein, which are not in that order, by the way. Um, and basically, the meal will suppress ghrelin secretion, right? Because this is an erectogenic peptide. <clears throat> now, even though ghrelin can act as an endocrine fashion, uh, there have been vagotomies performed. Now, vagotomy will disrupt communication between the stomach and the brain, okay, because the vagus nerve. And what happens when you do that, in the animal model, obviously, is it abolishes the ability of ghrelin to increase food intake. So that suggests there could be a paracrine effect because it goes directly from the stomach via the vagus to the brain. See, that would be a paracrine. Endocrine would mean you have to go into circulation. So ghrelin, besides all of uh, this uh, component of controlling or being, being induced upon stomach emptying, it also regulates glucose homeostasis, maybe indirectly. It does so by increasing the gastric emptying rate, and it also inhibits that glucose-stimulated insulin secretion. Now, the small intestine contains many different regulatory signals. For example, the CCK. Those are in the eye cells. And you have, of course, glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide. That's the GIP. When I said G1P and GIP, it's always GIP. Sorry about that. <laughs> I, I always get the um, number and that capital letter I mixed up. Now, those are in K cells. So the glucose insulinotropic polypeptide is in the K cell, CCK, I cell secretion. And in the ileum in the large intestine within the L cells, the glucagon-like peptide 1-2, or GLP-1-2, along with oxytomodulin, that's O-X-N acronym, and a peptide called YY, or PYY. Now, the secretion of all those hormones, these are all peptide hormones, is, of course, stimulated by nutrients within the intestine and then act on their respective receptors, usually GPRs, either centrally or specifically locally, as we mentioned last lecture, on the vagal afferents. 
Now, of course, those are very close proximity to the enteroendocrine cells, therefore regulating metabolic homeostasis. And it does it, again, through various changes in food intake, gastric emptying, intestinal motility, and sometimes energy expenditure, because that's going to be added on, uh, postprandial, and then, of course, during long fasting. Now, it's possible that nutrient-induced, gut-derived hormones activate a local gut signaling event specifically to trigger the CNS. And that's where the vagus nerve comes into play. And indirectly, that controls glucose homeostasis and lipoprotein trafficking. Now, the lipoprotein trafficking and some of the glucose homeostasis will be epigenetically controlled. And the immune system is going to play a role there because the immune system is always sensing the relative concentrations of carbon sources for bioenergetics, that is, the innate and the acquired immune cells. So at the duodenum, we have CCK, the GIP, the GLP-1, the OXN, and probably the PYY, all secreted. In the jejunum, which is, again, another component of the small intestine moving down, secretion of CCK and GIP. And in the ileum, GLP-1, GLP-2, OXN, and PYY. And, of course, way up at the stomach, we have ghrelin secretion. Okay. So let's talk about the glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide. The GIP. <laughs> it's because GIP, I should always remember this because it's gastric inhibitory peptide, which is a good name for it, right? So, what is this? It's a 42 amino acid polypeptide produced by the enteroendocrine K cells, released into circulation, and that's in response to nutrient stimulation. So, both the GIP and the GLP1, that's a glucagon like peptide 1 will actually stimulate insulin secretion in a glucose concentration-dependent manner. And so because of that, they're termed incretins, right? We mentioned this last time. Now, the structure of the mammalian GIP, highly conserved, both the N-terminus and the central region of the polypeptide are involved in the biological activity of that hormone. So following secretion, GIP is metabolized by a very unique uh, activity of the endoprotease dipeptidylpeptidase 4, also known as DPP4. Now, besides that, uh, adding to its insulinotropic activity, the GIP exerts a number of additional mechanisms. Those include the promotion of growth and survival of the pancreatic beta cells. So they're growth factors for the maintenance of the beta cells in the pancreas, therefore controlling ultimately insulin production and quantity on delivery. Now, besides that, um, what else can I say? You also get from the GIP a stimulation of adipogenesis. Okay, so new adipocyte differentiation—that's what that means. 
Now in the brain, also in bone marrow, cardiovascular system, and as we've been talking in the GI, you have additional targets for that GIP. The GIP receptor specifically is a B family of G protein coupled receptors, GP, uh, G, uh, yeah, GPCRs. And the activation results in the stimulation. This is canonical stuff we talk about many times. Adenylate cyclase and calcium D independent, excuse me, PLA2 and the activation, therefore, of protein kinase A and B. Okay, so a calcium independent PLA2 activation of uh, PKA and PKB. So a, a very storied single transduction cascade. Now, couple other kinases to talk about, the MEC12 and the ERK12 and the P38 MAP kinase signaling are among all the downstream pathways involved in the regulation that started with the GIP for beta cell function. GIP also increased the expression of an anti-apoptotic BCL2. We spent a lot of time on that about four months ago. And it decreases expression of the pro-apatotic BAX polypeptide, so resulting in reduced, ultimately, beta cell turnover. Right? So it maintains beta cell. That's why it's insulinotropic, right? Now, there's significant interest, of course, in the potential clinical applications of GIP using analogs or peptide mimetics, also potentially agonists and antagonists, depending on which stage of, for example, um, type 2 diabetes an individual happens to be in. Now, we can get into the details there later. So what about the GLP-1, cogun-like peptide 1? It's synthesized in the intestinal endocrine cells. Two principal major molecular forms is a GLP-1, that's a 7 to 36 uh, amide, and then there's GLP-1, 7 to 37. So they differ very slightly, right? GLP-1 secretion is by the ileal L cells, dependent on the presence of nutrients in the lumen of the small intestine. Peptide was first actually identified back in the 80s, and that's why it was classed into the incretin hormones, right? Now, GLP-1 is multiple physiological um, sequelae, and that makes that also a peptide. There's a candidate for perhaps examining in more molecular detail T2D, type 2 diabetes. So what did GLP-1 do? It increases, again, insulin secretion. It does so by specifically inhibiting glucagon release, but only when glucose levels are at a certain level in the serum. So that offers a potential titration to lower plasma glucose while reducing the likelihood of hypoglycemia. So gastric emptying is delayed and food intake is decreased after a GLP-1 administration. 
Now, that was a six-week study investigating continuous GLP-1 infusion. This is in the humans. Patients had type 2 diabetes, and they achieved actually a significant weight loss in that six-week period of about two kilograms. And you also had a reduction in appetite associated with them. Baseline uh, was compared with patients receiving, of course, the placebo. And there was no significant change in weight or appetite with the placebo-delivered um, cohort. Preclinical studies revealed other potential benefits of GLP-1 receptor agonist treatment. And in individuals with type 2 diabetes, which included the promotion of beta cell proliferation and reduced beta cell apoptosis. Again, all pancreatic insulinotropic mediated responses. Right? Now, preclinical results indicated that GLP-1 might be beneficial because of the results I just gave you in treating type 2 diabetes. However, the native GLP-1 when it is in circulation, is rapidly turned over and it's degraded by that enzyme, DPP4, we just introduced. <laughs> so it has a very short half-life on the order of um, 90 seconds. And therefore, determining how you could titrate GLP-1 in patients would require at least a 24-hour to 48 administration of the GLP-1 in order to be able to determine whether or not you could titrate glucose uptake with insulin secretion, maintaining the beta cell uh, activity at the same time, not overstimulating insulin production, therefore becoming hypoglycemic. You understand, this rheostat is very tightly controlled. So like a lot of hormones, it works down at the nanomolar to micromolar level. It's a peptide that can be easily turned over by convertases. So now let me talk about CCK okay, in more detail. Right? Cholecystokinin is a brain-gut peptide. Now in the gut, it induces the release of pancreatic enzymes, again alluded to last lecture. And it causes, interestingly, a specific contraction of the endothelial cells around the gallbladder matrix. But in the brain, its physiological role is much more complex. And we've talked about it in the past several times. It's part of that hypothalamic arcuate nucleus, which controls the orexigenic and the anorexigenic system. So CCK, particularly CCK8, has a multivalent activity. I explained in the gut, that we understand pretty well. And the brain, of course, is part of that whole axis of the NPY, CCK, versus the POMC, right? So that controls orexigenic and the anorexigenic, as well as ghrelin playing a role. And we also know that leptin plays a role in triggering that whole response in the CNS, right? And leptin, of course, is a different kind of coming from the adipose. Now, exogenous CCK will exert many different effects. 
and it occurs right at the site of administration. So that suggests the CCK can turn over, especially exogenous. So stimulating CCK may be better than trying to add an agonist of CCK mimetic because CCK is going to turn over and the mimetic probably won't because it could be engineered not to. So once again, once you start thinking about hormones, really when you think about any modification of any molecular event in, in the system, you have to consider how the normal regulation occurs. And if you're trying to amplify CCK or decrease CCK signaling, remember that it has a multivalent activity in multiple organ systems. And that there is a natural control over peptides by convertase activity, one hand, synthesis within that same measure, and then think about the receptor-mediated responses on the opposite side of that spectrum. Which receptors are necessary? Which cell types are we talking about? So it's far more complex when you start thinking about the potential role of CCK than the CNS, right? Because CCK also, as we talked about, again, many times, I, I know I keep on saying that, CCK plays a role in dopaminergic pathways. This is the reward pathway you hear about the CNS. In fact, CCK is in the neuropsychiatric literature as associated with anxiety disorders, panic states, opioid nociception, and indeed, finally, satiety. Okay, that's the whole reward pathway axis. So the cholecystokinin prohormone is actually processed. Um, via multiple regulatory systems involving proteolytic cleavage. There is an endo and an exoproteolytic response. It's cholecystokinin and prohormone. You also have two different transcript variants which, which encode the same protein, yet there's an epigenetic modification that mediates those two di different transcription rates. And we'll talk about that later. So CCK and gastrin, another hormone, will induce together the proactivation of the fibrogenic pathways that are linked to AKT, ERK, and CERC. That is not something you want to stimulate because that will stimulate fibrogenic pathways in the liver, the kidney, and the heart muscle none of which is good and most of which is pathophysiological. Now, AKT activation directly by CCK and or gastrin is inhibited by the PI3 kinase inhibitor, Wortmanin. Now, that suggests that CCK and possibly gastrin working together or synergistically might be able to induce collagen synthesis and therefore appears to be important in regulating not only liver, kidney, and heart, but also pancreatic fibrogenesis, all of which are pathophysiological. So CCK, as we've been saying, is secreted by the enteroendocrine eye cells. 
This is predominantly located in the proximal small intestine and it is in direct response to fatty acid nutrition. So the endogenous CCK also mediates the ability of the intestinal lipids to lower the GP via a gut-brain-liver neuronal axis. So that's a glucose-lowering effect of duodenal lipids dependent upon, ready for this, the esterification via acyl-CoA synthetase of very long-chain fatty acids, but also esterification of very long-chain fatty acids to long-chain fatty acyl-CoA that then is used as a substrate for Kennedy pathway enzymes generating phospholipids, particularly phosphatidylcholine, but also because it's in the Kennedy pathway, the synthesis of diacyclosterol, triacyclosterol, and then those fatty acids can also be transferred to sphingolipid metabolism. Okay, so just talking about that long chain acyl-CoA synthetase, that means that there are luminal lipid hydrolytic responses to long chain fatty acids, and then there is a subsequent reabsorption into the intestinal cells. That is linked to the fatty acid transporter cluster of differentiation, or the orphan receptor we call CD36. So there's a role for CD36 in mediating, therefore, you see how lipids are mediating a glucoregulatory role. And it's interesting to note that in CD36 knockout murine system, murine model, you get a reduction in the release of CCK. Okay, so CD36, that lipid receptor that will mo- that will mediate the uptake of long chain fatty acids, will also control ultimately CC- CCK metabolism in terms of its stimulatory role in the process. Okay. <laughs> Right, now that's the murine model. Now, long-chain fatty acid secretion and the glucose-lowering effect of CCK are dependent upon a protein kinase C delta. You have to stimulate that PKC delta, and that particular enzyme is localized to the duodenal mucosal layer. So here's the the sequence of events. Long-chain fatty acid, Acyl-CoA PKC delta activation, CCK pathway. And that's going to require that CCK component further activation of the CCK1 receptor. And that, as you will recall from last lecture, is located directly on the vagal afferent fiber, which innervates directly the enterocyte of the small intestine. So the binding of CCK to its receptor leads to PKA signaling, as we mentioned. That enhances N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor-mediated neuronal transmission in the nucleus of the solitary tract 
to lower glucose production, that is gluconeogenesis, and that occurs via the hepatic vagal branch system. All those results suggest that paracrine CCK activation will mediate the ability of duodenal lipids from the, from the diet to regulate glucose homeostasis by signaling directly to the CNS. Okay, I check my time here. Oh, we're doing great. All right, now. Let me see. I think I'm just going to go ahead, pass some of this information, and get into some anatomy. I'll talk about motility. You have a parasympathetic intervention, an innervation, excuse me, and that will stimulate an increase in activity of the motility in the small intestine. You have two components. You have a cranial. And that is transmitted with the vagus nerve, same vagus nerve, to provide extensive innervation to the esophagus, the stomach, the pancreas, and that first entire region of the large intestine. There's also a sacral parasympathetic innervation, innervation of motility. That originates in the second, third, and fourth sacral segments of the spinal cord, of course. That system will innervate the distal half of the large intestine. And that has a key role, actually, in the defecation reflex. Okay? Now let's finish with motility. The afferent nerve fibers. What are they doing? They transmit important information about status to the GI tract or to the CNS. So you have an afferent nerve fiber transmission that controls all those GI functions. Now the body of those nerve fibers in the submucosal plexus will ultimately terminate in the myenteric plexus. And what's that going to do? Transmit signals resulting in excitation or inhibition of that entire circuit of motility, secretion, physiological responses. Okay. What about the hormonal control of motility? Gastrin secreted by the stomach, in the mucosa of the stomach, and that happens when food enters the stomach. You get increased stomach motility, and you get gastric acid secretion. That will cause an increase in constriction. Okay. Now cholecystokinin again is secreted by the jejunum mucosa and that specifically is induced with fatty acid as we just went through. The fatty acid then makes the emulsification process in the jejunum. That will increase the contractility of the gallbladder as we alluded to. That will then go on to stimulate pancreatic secretions. And ultimately, CCK will regulate gastric emptying. Finally, bowel motility. And that will also indirectly induce satiety because that's working up in the central nervous system, right? 
Okay, so remember it goes all the way to the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus. So we talked about secretions. I don't think I need to go through that much anymore. Um, we talked about ghrelin, and I think we're ready to really um, talk about the digestion of lipids sensu stricto. Let me see how many minutes I've got left. We're almost at the point where we can go back to talk about lipoproteins and, of course, the immune response. Now, understand all of this is occurring in the digestive system with the with the contribution of the liver, and the pancreas, the gallbladder, the entire GI tract having a vagal neural conduit to the central nervous system, as well as all the circulatory components of all of, all of those neuroendocrine hormones that were secreted during digestion. I want you to keep that all in mind because you can understand how all of these processes are going to be tightly surveilled by the immune system. Why? Because the immune system is going to be looking for any alteration in gene expression within the multiple cell types that are playing a role in digestion so as to maintain the flux pattern necessary to digest all of the carbohydrate particularly lipid and protein, then transport that emulsified product into circulation with the lipid component being the major one with the chylomicra. Remember, that's going to be removing a lot of triacylglycerol. And then they're going to have all the liver involvement we talked about a couple of days ago. We'll continue soon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Podcast, saying bye for now.